On the back of your bulletin, there is a prayer request for a man named Yosef Nadarkhani. I don't know how to say it. Nadarkhani. Nadarkhani. Yosef Nadarkhani. He is an Iranian pastor that is in prison right now, and he's facing a death sentence. The Iranian government has convicted him of what they're calling thought crimes. Now, Pastor Yosef has refused to allow his children to read the Quran in school. He said, no, not going to do it. Not going to let that happen. And now he's facing the death penalty. See, Pastor Yosef, he, he will not denounce what he knows is true. He's given his word. He's made a vow to the Lord. He's made a vow to, to follow God. And he's going to stand up to it. Now, all the Iranian government wants from him is to say, you know what? I denounce the vow that I've made to Jesus. I denounce what I've taught. But he won't do it. Because he understands that there is serious implications when you give your word to something. When you commit to something. When you make a vow. And as we're going to see in our text today, in Judges chapter 11, this is exactly what we're going to end up with that it's incredibly important to recognize that when you give your word to the Lord, or when you make a commitment, that you follow up with that commitment. The title of my message today is, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can be the death of me. Open your Bibles to Judges chapter 11, please. Let's have a, a word of prayer. God, we, we thank you for this day. We recognize that you are good and that you are holy. God, we pray that, that we would have humble hearts this morning, that we would listen to what you want to teach us through your Holy Spirit. And we ask that we would leave this room a changed people, a people dependent on you and committed to keeping our word. Now, God, I pray that you would bless this time. May it glorify you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so a little context here. Judges chapter 11, the book of Judges. It's this story going over and over and over of, of a judge being elected and them starting to do things godly and then worshiping idols and, and forsaking the Lord. And then... Somebody goes to war with Israel, and God delivers Israel. And this happens over and over and over and over. And it's a constant theme in the book of Judges. So, now in the, in the first part of uh, chapter 11 and the latter part of chapter 10, Israel was under attack from the Ammonites. The Ammonites were east of Israel. Uh, they were starting to um, come against the people that were living in a, a region called Gilead. Now, uh... The people of Israel had been worshipping Baal and other foreign gods, and, and uh, they, they had forsaken the religion that, that God had given them. They had forsaken the God of Israel. And so, as the Ammonites start to come against Israel, they realize that they're doing this wrong. They realize that they're committing idolatry, and they say, All right, God, we're going to turn back to you. And, and if you read chapter 10, God, God says... You wanted to worship them? Let them be your gods. God says, I don't know. Whatever. You made your decision. Go worship them. See if I care. But then at the end of that chapter, it, there, there's a peculiar verse that, that indicates that God could not take it anymore. In 1016, as we'll look at later, God, God's soul was so moved that he couldn't continue to be uh, hardened towards his people. He couldn't continue to turn his back on them. And so he plans to deliver them from the Ammonites of the east. Now, as this is going on, the leaders of Israel are looking for someone to lead the army against uh, the people of Ammon. And they select Jephthah. Now, who is Jephthah? Jephthah is, Jephthah is the son of a... A Gileadite man and a harlot that he visited. And so the, his father, the Gileadite man, has a wife and several other sons with, with this wife, uh, and they're Jephthah's half-brothers. And these brothers 
say to Jephthah, you're not our brother. You're from a different mother. Get out of our land. So they kick him out of, they kick him out of the family and they kick him out of Gilead. And, and Jephthah becomes a raiding marauder that, that is leading a group of what the Bible describes as worthless men. Now, worthless doesn't mean that they have no value. It just means that their actions, their actions are just absolutely awful. There, there's no value, no, no good coming from their actions. So, now it's time to go to war. And, and the people, the leaders of Israel, decide to select Jephthah. So they come to Jephthah and they say, Hey, Jephthah, you want to lead our army? And he says, Oh, I'll lead your army. I'll lead your army. But only if you make me your leader. Only if you put me in charge. See, the thing here is, Jephthah's saying, Jephthah's saying, I want power. I want to be in charge. So if you want me to lead, then I'm in charge. Now it's peculiar that we don't see in this selection of Jephthah as as leader and judge of Israel any role of God. See, in Judges we see God chose this judge, God chose this judge, but not with Jephthah. So the leaders of Israel say, all right, all right, Jephthah, you can be our leader. And it's there that we'll pick up our story. Verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you should come to fight against me in my land? And the king king of the people of Ammon answered the messenger of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, as far as the Arnon, as far as Jabuk, and to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore the lands peaceably. So, Jephthah, Jephthah starts his, his rule of, of Israel with a, a message to the king that's warring against him. And he says, why are, you, why are you trying to fight Israel? What have we done to you? We have done nothing wrong. All we're doing is hanging out and you're trying to fight us. And so the king answers. He says, uh, he says you took our land away. And Jephthah's going to respond here in a second. But, but what I find interesting here is, is the way that Jephthah starts this. Jephthah's a warrior. He's a marauder, a raider. He's a violent man. That's what he does. That's how he's lived for a long time. He's been selected to lead the army, and he starts with diplomacy. Now, that doesn't really make sense, does it? I mean, how often do we think, do we think oh, somebody's going to war? Let's, let's fight him. Let's go back. I think Jephthah does a good thing here. Look at Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 18. It says, If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now I suggest to you today that, that Jephthah starts his rule in a godly way. He's not seeking violence and war, if at all possible, if it depends on him. No, he's going to seek peace. See, as, as Christians, we would be wise to take note of that. Now, I'm not saying that there's not a time for war and that there's not a time where, where peace can't be had. But so much as it depends on us, let's, let's try and seek peace. There's, there's a saying in the military that says, uh, pray for peace, but train for war. Now, we know that Jephthah's serious that, that you know, I might have to go to war, but he, it's, it's not a desire of his, nor should it be ours. But there is a time for that. And one of those times is exactly what the, the response from the king of Ammon is. It, it comes just as a situation when it no longer depends on Jephthah. See, the response is against Israel for taking the land of, of Ammon after the exodus and the years in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting to note a couple things here. Notice that the accusation against Israel is that they took the land away. Now, if you recall the story of the Exodus, that's not quite what happened. It wasn't that Israel just came in and said, this is our land, get out. No, they came to this area and they said, hey, we're just trying to pass through to the other side of the Jordan. Can we, can we pass through your land? And, and the kings at that time said, nope, you sure can't. And so what happened? God delivered the people. God gave them the land. There was a war. God proved victorious through the Israelites, and they inherited the land because of it. So the accusation here that Israel has taken the land is really kind of an accusation against God. 
Now, it may be not knowingly an accusation against God, but the Ammonites are angry that the land was taken. Well, the land was given by God. So really, they're angry with God's action to give the land to the Israelites. Take note of verse uh, 17. Actually, let's, let's continue to read. Um, verse 14. So Jephthah, sent, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up out of Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh, and they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab. For the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Hezron. And Israel said to him, Please, let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon granted, gathered all his people together and camped at Jehaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Verse 22, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jebuk and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So after, after the king says to Jephthah, you stole our land, Jephthah says, no, we didn't. We never wanted it. We tried to just pass through and you wouldn't let us. You were obstinate against God and what he was doing. And what happened? God won out. Take note of verse 17. Jephthah says that Israel asked to pass through. And they weren't granted the ability to do so. And then jump down to verse 20. It says that the king did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So he gathered all his people and went out against Israel. And what happened as a result of that? Verse 21 and 22. We see that God grants victory to Israel and the land became part of their possession. So... You have these people that, that come to uh, th this country that they're, they're just trying to pass through. And they say, hey, can, can we pass through your land? Can we uh, come through here? And the king says, no way. I don't trust you. You're going you're gonna to do something sneaky. I just know you are. I know, I know you're going to do something sneaky. You're going to try and take my land. And I'm not going to have it. I don't want any part of that. And he goes to war with them. And, 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 and so there's this idea here that, that, uh, that Israel's not to be trusted in their eyes. And as a result of that, God's like, are you kidding? I'm, I'm going I'm to take this land away from you if you're not going to heed what I say to you. And that's exactly what he does. Now, quick bit of history. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, it was believed that a god of a people controlled a certain area. So basically, it was kind of like the god of California says this, and the god of California is sovereign over all of California. But the god of New York is sovereign over New York and controls everything in New York. Now, we know that's not true. We know that there's only one God, but that was the belief in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so anything that happened was as a result of what the God of that area wanted. And if your God lost out to another God, well, that's because your God wasn't as powerful as the other God. It puts a lot of context to a lot of Old Testament stories um, when, we, when we think about, oh, wow, God's showing power here over other gods. That's why. Anyways, I digress. So this idea that a god controls a certain area explains a lot of what Jephthah says in the following verses. Let's pick the story up in verse 23. And now the Lord God of Israel has disposed all the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Shemash your God gives you to possess? 
will you not possess whatever the God of your, your area wants you to have? Isn't he sovereign over that? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we shall possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? Did you guys catch the sarcasm there? It's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. Remember, remember, gods of certain areas are sovereign over those areas. So what does Jephthah say? I thought your God was sovereign. Not happening. If he wants you to have it, wouldn't you have it? See, Jephthah's calling him out. He's saying, what are you complaining about? You have exactly what your God wants you to have. Why are you complaining? Jephthah knows that this complaint that they've took the land is just absurd. It's just nonsense. Clearly, Shamash, your God, has what you want, what he wants you to have. Doesn't he? Isn't he your God? Isn't he sovereign over your area? It's hilarious. And then what else? Jephthah says, your kings, they tried to take it. You guys remember the story of Balaam and the donkey? Where Balaam is trying to uh, go... And, and put a curse on the people of Israel at the request of who? At the request of Balak, the son of Zippor. So what is this? This is, this is Jephthah saying, hey, remember how God's sovereign protection was for Israel when, when your king wanted to put a curse on us? He used a donkey, a talking donkey. Who do you, you really think you have some kind of claim to this land? God used a talking donkey to show you that you can't touch us. That we have what God wants us to have. That this is our land. And then Jephthah makes another point. Notice verse 36. We've lived here for 300 years and you never said a word. Really? You're going to say something after 300 years? See, Jephthah knows that this claim is absurd. Why? Because your God doesn't want you to have the land. Because your kings couldn't take it from our sovereign protection. And three, we've lived here for 300 years and you didn't say anything. And so what's Jephthah's conclusion on this matter? Let's continue. Verse 27. Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which, Jeb, which Jephthah sent him. So Jephthah concludes and says, look, the finality of the matter is this. Israel's not done anything wrong. You're in the wrong for trying to fight us. You're in the wrong for coming to war against us. And because Jephthah knows that he's not wrong, he leaves it up to the judgment of God. See, Jephthah recognizes that you can't always convince someone, even when you're right. I, uh, I often talk to family and friends um, non-believing family and friends that, that uh, are just so dead set against the idea that, that Jesus could be God. I, I remember one time I was, I was talking to one of my friends and, and I, I, was, I said to him, look man, the idea of Christianity, he saw it as, as a, just, just some set of ethics. And I told him, I said, no, the idea is that, that things are being restored to how God created them. And that's being done through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and he, he said to me, he said, no, that just, that just doesn't make any sense. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And, and I, I tried to explain to him how, how it worked and what the, the context for Christianity is. And, and I tried all these apologetic methods to convince him. And at the end of the day, nothing happened. He was just like, well, you make good arguments, but I still don't believe you. 
Look, there's times when we know that, that we're right. And it's not because we've used our human logic to figure it out. It's because it's what the scriptures teach. And in those times, when we know we're right and people are still saying, nope, nope, just like, just like the king of Ammon was saying to Jephthah, it's in those times that we have to say, you know what, God? You're in control. You're sovereign. I'm leaving this up to your judgment. I'm going to allow you to decide how to proceed from here. It's not what I think. It's what you think. It's not what I want. It's what you want. And that's hard. And I I recognize that that's difficult at times. But it takes humility to know when to speak and when to allow God to show a person that they're wrong. Because God's a whole lot better at showing people that, that their worldview, that the things that they believe are incorrect, as opposed to us trying to point out flaws in logic or lifestyle. And so we must be humble in those times and allow God to render judgment where he sees fit. So now, uh, getting back to our text, we take a crucial turn. And the order of events here is going to play a a very central role in what's going on. So pay close attention to that, and we'll return to the order of events at the end of our story. But first, let's read verse 39. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and towards Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced towards the people of Ammon. So, Jephthah is going through the land of Gilead, and he's going to these different cities, and it's most likely that he's recruiting uh, soldiers in these cities. So, Jephthah comes to these cities, and he says, hey, we're going to war. We're going to war the people of Ammon. They're way wrong, and they want to fight us, so we're going to go to war. We need your men to come join us. Now, in this time, like, you know, there wasn't ladies allowed in the army, so it was only men. But, I mean, if, ladies, if you want to picture yourself in the army at this time, on board with that. I think you had every right to be there. So, Jephthah is, he's, he's, he's going through these cities, and he's recruiting people, and he's saying, hey, we are going to go to war. Who's with us? And he gets, he gets an army together, and then he advances towards the Ammonites. Now, note here that as the leader of the Gileadites, Jephthah has not conducted himself in a way that was necessarily evil. Or he's not really done anything, according to this story, that's ungodly. Now, he came into power by manipulation and by seeking power and and not really trying to be dependent upon God, but rather trying to exalt himself. Um, But we see him use diplomacy. We see him allow God to be the judge. And those things are good. But now, our story is going to take a very crucial turn. And Jephthah is going to return to his old, rash, and foolish ways of seeking power and glory for himself. Remember, the Spirit of of God has been sent upon Jephthah. This has already happened. And in in chapter 10, we saw that that, uh, God has already planned to deliver, uh, deliver Israel. I mentioned that at the beginning, and we'll return to that in a few minutes. Uh, But for now, let's read verses 30 to 35. So, Jephthah has gone against the people of Ammon, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon surely shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror as far as Maneth, twenty cities, and to Abel Karman with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. 
Now when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And she was his only child. Besides, besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass, and when he saw her, that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. It's pretty crazy. He vows to offer whatever comes out of his house as a burnt offering, and then what is it? His daughter. Now let's walk through this slowly because there's a lot of things going on here and there's actually a, quite a bit of contention about this portion of the text. Um, so, Jephthah makes this vow. And he says, God, if you give me victory over Ammon, I will make a sacrifice to you, whatever it is that comes out of my house. Notice... Uh, Notice what he offers the sacrifice as, a burnt offering. Now, it's not totally uncommon to see vows in the scriptures, and, and uh, they're not intrinsically wrong. We even see guidance for them in the scriptures. Notice uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21. It says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. That is, if you didn't offer it. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily, voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So, it's not wrong to make a vow. But if you do make a vow, you're expected to keep it. Now, Jephthah makes his vow Conditional upon God's reward, if you, if you caught that there, which is pretty characteristic of vows. He says, God, if you deliver me, if you deliver the people of Ammon into my hand, then I'll make a sacrifice. But only then. And when I return in peace to my house. See, it assumes that he is going to return, and that he'll also return safely, and that they will have won. So he's really asking for three things in this vow. And then, I'll offer a burnt sacrifice. A burnt offering. So, this vow. What is, what is, he, what is he promising God? What is he offering in exchange? Now, commentators differ about this. And uh, some people say that he knew exactly what he was saying, and some people said, well, it was just a rash and harsh vow. Now, some commentators say he was offering a human. Jephthah was offering a human. He was promising to offer God a human as a burnt sacrifice. Now, mind you that human sacrifice is not totally uncommon in this time frame. Um, there's Lots of scripture in the uh, Old Testament that, that says you won't do that. You won't offer your children as burnt offerings. So it was fairly common in that day and in that region. Um, and it's called an abomination to the Lord, as we'll see later. However, keep in mind that that is the culture. That is the context. That's the setting. Now, the people that say, well, Jephthah is offering a human, uh, they, they derive this from uh, an interesting structure in the text. The, text, the, way the, the way the text is structured in the Hebrew is very odd. Um, it's, it's very ambiguous. And, and you read it, and, and you have to look at it again and say, wait, what, what is, what's he offering? What's, what did he promise? And you have to look at it again and again and again, and you can't really figure it out. Now, some of the older translations of your Bible might actually say, uh, whoever comes out of my house. Um, but m most modern translations render that as whatever comes out of my house. Now, the Hebrew wording is uh, rendered in the masculine 
the masculine form of the words. So, some commentators have said, well, because it's not a neuter form of the words, meaning there's no gender ascribed to it, then he must be promising a human. I don't exactly agree with that. Um, while it can mean a, a person, a man, it doesn't necessarily have to. Sometimes uh, wording is described um, in the, the masculine gender, but it's not describing a human. And there's lots and lots of in instances in the scriptures where this is the case. So I, I, don't, I don't believe that entirely. Now, some other commentators have said, well, because something was coming out of Jephthah's house, it had to be a person. Now, this, this is actually an interesting argument. And for a lot of time, it, it held a lot of sway um, amongst commentators. Because think about your house. Can an animal, like, is, is an animal going to open the door and come out of your house? Probably not. Not unless you have a chimpanzee in there and he, he's figured out the locks. But I don't know of anyone that has that, especially in this time frame. But uh, archaeology has shown that there was a time when animals, before they were domesticated pets, lived with people. Take a look at this picture. Now, it's kind of dark, but you can see, you can see in the courtyard that there's animals in there, and, and there's also people walking around in there. And so when Jephthah says, whatever comes out of my, my, out of my house or my gate to meet me, shall surely be the Lord's. It is absolutely possible that an animal lived in this house with Jephthah. And I would say that it's not only possible that that is exactly what Jephthah had in mind. However, the way that he uses the vow is so ambiguous that it still allows for the possibility of a human. See, Jephthah doesn't say, whatever animal comes out of my house, I will, I will offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. He says, whatever comes out of my house, I will offer as a burnt offering So I disagree with commentators that say, well, because it's in, in the uh, masculine form and because only humans can really come out of a house, I disagree with them on, on that basis. And, and I argue that, yes, it is possible that, that the construction of the vow allows for a human, but it doesn't necessitate that it is a human. Now, there's, there's one last thing that, that commentators have suggested, and they've said, well, because he's asking for such a great thing, he's got to offer a really good sacrifice. I don't buy that. Over and over in Judges, we, we see that the people cry out to God and say, God, deliver us from war. And God does. No human sacrifice required. So I, I just I don't buy that, that last view, um, nor do many, many commentators. However... All those things considered, Jephthah's vow does allow for a human. And as we see in the story, that's exactly what comes out of his house, is his daughter, his child. I don't think it's totally uncommon for us to, to make rash vows or commitments. I remember this one time, I, a couple years ago, I was going through this period in my life where, where everything was just... It seemed like everything was going against me. I mean, I had nothing going for me, I thought. And, and I, I was crying out to God, and I was saying, God, where are you at? Where are you at, God? I remember going down to the beach and screaming, God, where are you? And he was nowhere to be found. And, and I remember yelling and saying, God, I'll give you whatever you want, just... Just, come on. Help me out. It was like a week later that God was like, oh, you're going to go to Bible college and you're going to be judged more harshly because of that. And I was like, sweet. That was a really good vow. Smart of me. No, I'm kidding. I, I absolutely uh, love being able to study God's word, and it's a blessing to do that. Um, yeah, that was, that was the vow I made. And at first, I was like, 
oh man, I don't really don't want to do that, God. Like, that's, that's a big responsibility. I didn't really mean what I said. Come on. You can let me off, right? Like, you can let me slide on this one, right? No. Uh-uh. Nope. Sure didn't get to. Friends, we have to be cautious about what we're promising. Not only what we're promising God, but what we're promising each other. What we're promising, promising the church. What we're promising our bosses. What we're promising our spouses. Ambiguity allows for a lot of things that we never intended. And though it might be God's will, which you should follow, sometimes our ambiguity can lead us into a place that isn't God's will. And that's exactly what we're going to see with Jephthah as we continue reading. So this ambiguous vow to sacrifice whatever comes out of the house is dependent upon uh, victory, and no small victory. Read verse 32 again. So Jephthah advanced towards the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. So it's God's action that delivered Ammon into the hands of Jephthah. Now, the narrator, narrator of the story credits God with this victory. But he makes no mention of the victory being as a result of Jephthah's vow. Right? Remember that we talked earlier about uh, God had already planned to deliver them. And we'll see that again in a few minutes. But it had nothing to do with the vow. So Jephthah comes home after... after they're delivered into his hands, and there's this great slaughter, which uh, the uh, first part of chapter 12 deals with a little bit. And if you want to read that on your own time, it's a good read. And so Jephthah comes home, and he sees his daughter, and he says, Oh, man, you've brought me very low. This is your fault, daughter. Typical patriarchal fashion. He blames it on her, even though it's his rash vow. That is causing this. So Jephthah blames his daughter for his rash vow and rash words. And what does she do? Verse 35. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, You brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. Verse 36. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done to me. Let me alone for two months, that I may bewail my virginity, me and my friends. Excuse me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. Verse 38. So, she sa- so he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. And she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. So what's Jephthah decide to do? He blames her and then she says, All right, God, or, all right Jephthah. All right, Dad. Do whatever you promised God. I mean, imagine that. Imagine looking up at your parents and saying, You promised to kill me? Okay. What? What? That, that takes an incredible amount of resolve. And some commentators have said, well, because she agreed, then there's no moral problem with sacrificing her. No, absolutely not. Look at verse, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy Chapter 12, verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. That's the people of uh, the land that they're coming to possess. For they burn even their sons or daughters in the fire to their gods. They offer their children as sacrifices. Also notice Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. Not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. 
or one who practices witchcraft or soothsayer or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer. Clearly, God is not okay with sacrificing the lives of people. Now, in our modern context, we say, well, yeah, of course we know that. It's a good thing this doesn't happen today. It does. It happens. It happens in Haiti. People still sacrifice their children. God's still not okay with it. And he wasn't okay with it at this time either. But I mean, is there, an ever, is there ever an exception? I mean, is Jephthah going to get a pass here? Is God going to intervene and say, well, you promised. No, he's not. Friends, there's one exception. And that exception has been ordained since before time even began. And that exception is not only human, but that, that exception is also God in the person of Jesus Christ. Very God himself and very man himself has decided in and of himself to sacrifice his life willingly. Not to... Not to to please God, but for our benefit. God was in perfect communion before he created us. And he continues to be without us. But he has lovingly decided to accept us into that communion with him. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can become part of that. Because that is the only sacrifice of a human that has ever counted for anything. The rest, every other sacrifice of a human has been immoral and wrong and contrary to God's will. Friends, Jesus is the only exception to this rule that we see in Deuteronomy. But also notice that Deuteronomy is not talking about death on a cross. It's talking about burning your children. Those of you that are parents can't even fathom such a, such a thing. So, back to our text. Jephthah's daughter agrees to be a sacrifice, but first she says, let me have two months to go and bewail my virginity. Now, in this context, it, it is, uh, it's, it's not kind of what we think it is. It is in a way. When she wants to bewail her virginity, she wants to mourn the fact that she's never going to have children. She has no brothers and sisters. She's not going to have anyone to carry out her lineage. In her mind, the only thing she was good for was having children. So now, she's good for nothing. And so she's going to go bewail this and mourn this with her friends. Jephthah says, yes. I will allow that. For two months, go and bewail your virginity. Because Jephthah's lineage is ending too, and he's probably not happy about that either. Verse uh, 39. I'm sorry. Yes, 39. So she goes away. Verse 39. And it was at the end of the two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Oh man, there's some commentators that say, well, the sacrifice was her virginity. She was kept in a perpetual state of virginity. Unfortunately not, friends. Unfortunately not. See, the argument of chastity comes from this inclusion of uh, the comments at the end of uh, 39, when it says, she knew no man. Commentators have said, well, that indicates that, that she continued to know no man. Well, no, I, I, I disagree. She didn't know a man, so it's included. She did remain as a virgin, so that's included there. Notice what else that verse says, though. And he carried out his vow. What was his vow? Look back to uh, verse 31, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 31. 
I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That was Jephthah's vow. And he carried it out. Now friends, I don't take this position because it's PC. And here in just a second, we're going to talk about God's interaction with this sacrifice. But it's clear from the text that Jephthah murdered his daughter and offered her as a burnt sacrifice, as a burnt offering. We get further support from this in verse 36, where it says, Do to me as you have said. What was that? Again, verse 31, to offer as a burnt offering. Now recall that this practice wasn't totally uncommon, but it still wasn't okay. So how did God feel about this sacrifice? Well, remember that I said the order of this story was very important. So, let's go through the order of the story again really quick. First, Jephthah becomes the leader of Israel by manipulation. Not by God, but by man is he chosen. Jephthah says, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go fight the war for you and I'll win. But you're going to make me your leader. Then we see Jephthah talking, uh, talking for Israel, not as a prophet or a man of God, but seeking diplomacy. He, he, he goes to the king and he says, what is, it, what is it that we've done to you? Third, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, this is an indication that God did show favor upon Jephthah. But notice, notice here, friends, that this is before Jephthah makes his vow. Chapter 10, verse 16 says, So they put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. This is the same context, the same, the same storyline. This is as Ammon is coming against Israel. Friends, before Jephthah was even selected to be the leader God had planned to deliver Israel. It had nothing to do with Jephthah's vow. God's deliverance had nothing to do with Jephthah's vow. God's deliverance was planned before Jephthah even became leader of Israel. Fourth, after God shows favor on Jephthah as a means by which to deliver Israel Jephthah makes his vow. Fifth, God delivers Israel. And he does this as he planned to do before the vow was made, not as a result of the vow. The vow is a secondary issue. What the primary focus of this story is, is God's deliverance of Israel. And last we see Jephthah sacrificed his daughter because of a foolish and unnecessary vow. Friends, I'm going to say this again. God did not deliver Israel because Jephthah made this vow or because he offered the sacrifice. No. God had planned to deliver Israel before Jephthah was even the leader of Israel. Jephthah's vow, his Foolish and rash vow was as a result of his desire for power and, and greed and to, to be in charge. The vow and the sacrifice were not why God delivered Israel. He planned to deliver them prior to the vow. God took no pleasure in that sacrifice. God was not okay with that sacrifice. Now, friends, as I, I thought about, well, what, does this, what does this mean for our life? I, I thought, well, what if we find ourselves in a position like Jephthah, where, where we're, we're faced with, should I keep my, my word when doing so means acting immorally? That's a tough question, isn't it? But I think it's the wrong one. Now, I will say this. 
do not act contrary to what the scriptures teach. That is an incredible principle to live by. If you do so, you'll live a pretty godly life. But the right question for us to ask is, am I committing to things before I think through them? Am I saying things that are rash? Am I promising to do things that I don't really know if I can do? Friends, before we commit to something, before we give our word, before we make a vow, we need to be slow to think about the implications and what we're committing to. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, which means if you say yes to something, you better do it. So, so how do you avoid ending up in a position like Jephthah where, where to, to act immorally is to keep your vow? You think through what you're committing to. Now, I do this all the time. I have a really, really difficult time of, of saying no to certain things. There's a lot of times where, where people will approach me or, or I'll get something in the mail and I think, wow, this is an incredible, godly thing to do. But there's times i just got to say no. I just have to. And there's nothing wrong with that. But friends, before you say yes, know what you're saying yes to. Know what the implications of that are for, for your life. It's easy to overcommit. And then you, when you follow through, your words have become the death of you. You're burned out. You're disconnected from family, friends, and God. Friends, let us be true to our word. Let us be people of integrity. May we have the courage to know when to say yes and know when to say no. May we be people that, that glorify God by saying, yes, I will commit to that and doing it. May we also be people that say, no, I won't. I can't. And may we be people that think through the implications of what we're committing to. Let's pray. God, we recognize that, that in our culture and in our lives, we often commit to things that we shouldn't. We often commit to things that, that we don't know what we're committing to and that we overcommit ourselves. God, help us to be people that know when to say yes and know when to say no. God, help us be people of integrity. Help us be people that keep our word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.